Listening to the Cars of Carlisle Network podcast, episode number 154, featuring Lynn Paxton, champion open wheel racer, mechanic, driver, racing historian. Remember, this is your podcast. Together, it's all about car community, car culture. Cars of Carlisle is your favorite internationally downloaded podcast about all things automotive. Darren and his CFC team are ever searching for interesting automotive happenings, real stories about real car people, and fun features to inform and entertain you. Each week, the Cars of Carlisle crew brings you show topics ranging from car shows to team adventures to auto racing weekends to behind-the-scenes human interest stories from car nuts that live across town, across the country, or even across the globe. Come join the road trip. Today, hear from Lynn Paxton a former dirt track racing champion, motorsports ambassador, and current curator of the Eastern Museum of Motor Racing. In this episode, we showcase Mr. Paxson's recent presentation at the AACA Museum concerning the history, specifics, and anecdotes of the Arden Hemispherical Head design. It's time to head to Hershey, cause yeah, it's got a Hemi. So, let's get Hello and welcome back, Cubers, to your favorite informative automotive podcast. I am your trusted host, Darren, and sitting in the passenger seat tonight is John Dickowitz. John, welcome. Hello, everyone. Here in Studio A, in fact, John did me a, a big solid. I was away, and he covered a, a great presentation done by Lynn Paxton, and we'll get into that in a, in a moment here, but you could say he was a bit of a Cars of Carlisle correspondent last month on a Saturday, went down to the AACA Museum and hung out with our friends there. Special big, assignment. Yeah, big thank you to Jeff and, and Bill. Do you want to talk you know, as far oh, as... Oh, yes, yes. Uh, uh, Jeff Bleemeister, uh, the president of the museum, and uh, our good friend here at Cars of Carlisle, Bill Sangri, for arranging this. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has just put so much effort into establishing a program of bringing in these extremely knowledgeable, gifted individuals to discuss uh, from seemingly every perspective, uh, performance, automobiles, history, you name it. And it went just perfectly with the uh, with the display that's, I guess, up until uh, about the third week of April, I believe, at the AACA Museum. And that is, of course, the, yeah, it's got Yes, the Hemi exhibit. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's uh, coming to a close here in a few weeks. It but is, uh, yeah. And it's been a hit, even under these circumstances. The traffic has been... Huge hats off to Bill Sangri as the guest curator of that. And this was so fitting that he had Lynn Paxton come in yes. uh, the 20th of February, yeah. that Saturday, to, to give a presentation. And it was very well attended, both in person and I believe by Zoom or by Skype as well. Yes. So they had uh, uh, you know, multiple participation channels, if you will. But if you haven't heard of Lynn, uh, we, we were just... Uh, talking earlier you can find out more about lynn paxton on the uh, uh, empaonline.org site that's the eastern motorsports press association website and they did a really nice write-up about lynn and the fact that he's sort of a he's a fixture he really is right the kind of and he was an open wheel racer for two decades but the kind of guy that liked to tweak and hone and refine and always thinking, always analyzing, finding ways to make it faster. He, more he's accurately more described as the thinking man's racer because mm-hmm. he was always making adjustments, fine-tuning everything. And he would take the conditions of the track, uh, what he had to work with as far as the vehicle, uh, you know, the engine setup. I mean, always, always, you know, tweaking and just dialing it in mm-hmm. a little bit further mm-hmm. to get that much more out of what he had to work with. He's, you could arguably say that he was one of the finest at being able to pull everything out of whatever he had to work with. That's incredible. Yeah. Well, I like the fact that he's known for being a, a fair, uh, clean, uh, but, you know, all, all out hard racer, but he, he wasn't one that would no. do it in an aggressive way or what have you. And, and it was very, very successful. And I know that, um, he had World of Outlaws wins. He uh, 
had won at Williams Grove and Port Royal and, and all throughout the area in dirt track and, and extremely well-respected. You were just telling me how he holds court, essentially, Oh yeah, at yeah. the uh, Carlisle Absolutely. Uh, they always have spaces. I don't know if it's the Eastern Museum of Racing. I think it is. And, of course, he being like the de facto... Uh, curator he's there and people are constantly Mm -hmm. stopping in asking him about you know uh, some of his exploits on the track Mm -hmm. or people that were renowned figures in the area that really made a name for themselves Uh, he's the guy Mm -hmm. he's the guy i mean if you want to know something about racing in this general region and really on a larger scale because he's a historian that's a good way to describe him. I mean, he was always, you know, first and foremost, he was focused on, you know, what he wanted to do and what he wanted to achieve as a racer, as an engine builder and such. But he's a fan, first mm-hmm. and foremost, mm-hmm. and he loves the history of it. And you can just tell by being within close proximity, he's always reading and absorbing. And as he said... And humble. Like, extremely. Like extremely. Said, if, if he doesn't know it, he'll, he'll admit it. He'll yeah, say, he'll say, hey, you know what, guys? I don't know everything. If you've got something that I missed or something mm-hmm. that you can add to it, please speak up because mm-hmm. you know what? The chapter's never closed on any of this. Mm-hmm. You know, there are always pages to be filled. That's right. That's right. No, that's a, that's a gentleman racer right there. So not only was he a championship uh, driver, uh, but also the fact he's become a subject matter expert on the Arden Hemi. And that's why Bill Sangri had him present and speak. Uh, in the, the lecture was... Uh, yes. We're gonna we're gonna feature that here. I'm gonna apologize up front that uh, we do our best with where we were positioned. Uh, this recording uh, is is faint, we, and you may have to strain, so uh, you might have to pump up the volume on your <laughs> your listening device, and then whenever it, it the uh, that ends, it'll it'll get real loud again. But uh, we are we'll work on that in the future. But we are just uh, really fortunate that we were able to be part of. Uh, the AACA Museum as far as letting us be there and be part of something like that. Again, it just highlights how this area is the focal point for anything and everything that is automotive related. Isn't it? It really is. The world comes here. The world comes here. And there's so much that's here. Right. Homegrown. And we're just talking about right off of Route fifteen. Yeah. Yeah. The Eastern Museum racing right down in New York Springs, Latimer Valley. I mean it's phenomenal. I mean, if you have even a cursory interest in racing uh, from its inception and how it evolved, the place is, it's just so, so multifaceted. You walk in there and you're just enveloped. You really are. The, the way the exhibits are set up and how everything complements everything else, you know, they have, you know, showcases uh, and displays that are specific to one particular uh, track and in some cases, one driver. And it, it really is a compendium of everything uh, that happened within, you know, 100-mile radius. And on a larger scale, just, you know, the history of racing itself. Mm. So, John, would you like to ask this week's trivia question? Yes, indeed. All right. Cue it up. Let's do it. Okay. To all of you out there, where did the name Arden originate? A-R-D-U-N. That answer awaits at the end of this episode. So let's go now to the AAC Museum and listen to Lynn Paxton. Uh, what we're going to do a little <laughs> bit is uh, they told me what they wanted to talk about. And uh, later on, we're going to talk about the history of the Hemi, uh, Pew Joe's uh, part in it, Miller Offenhauser, Arden in uh, 1947, of course, uh, Chrysler's 1951 version of the Hemi. Uh, anybody know when the first Hemi won it in Indianapolis? Anybody? I just wondered. We'll get to that too. All right. And uh, what I, what's unique to my deal is I got to spend a weekend with Duntoff. And uh, what a tremendous weekend. Uh, he was he was a gentleman. His wife was, was really nice. And uh, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later too. Uh, I'm going to give you a little background on me. I was born and raised in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. 
on uh, Route 15, right by the where the turnpike cross. We were only about three and a half miles from Williams Grove. My dad had the last garage in Autocourt before he got to the Grove. So I got to see a lot of racers in my younger days come through there. My dad was a, a pretty fair mechanic. Uh, the first uh, car that he restored, I remember was a 1904 Rio truck. Anybody lived around Mechanicsburg, how hardware was the old hardware store in Mechanicsburg. And this was the first non-horse-drawn vehicle in Mechanicsburg. So uh, that was pretty nice. I think he bought it in 39 and ended up trading it in to buy a 15 Model T. He did that in 5051, restored the Model T. Uh, we still have the Model T. It's still restored to 1951, but it's pretty presentable. I'll, I'll correct that. It's all original except for the right front fender has been replaced. Not, it's not replaced, it's been repaired. And that's a whole nother story that somebody else would tell today anyhow. So uh, that's called a mistake on my part. Anyhow, that Model T, I remember going uh, to Devon to the spring meet uh, or the fall meet. And then of course in 1954, I remember going to the first Hershey meet. And we still have the Model T and we still got the little plate for being here in 1954. So, uh, that thing goes back a long way. Uh, in my later 50s, not my later 50s, but in the 50s, uh, I, I was a Ford man. Flathead Fords, a uh, lot of, lot of old Fords and everything. But I saw this thing that General Motors is going to build this Corvette. And I thought that was pretty interesting. I, I was interested in it. But then when I saw it was a six cylinder automatic, I lost interest completely. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Duntoff went to work for General Motors in 1953. And although he didn't design the Chevy V8, he was the one that put the punch into it. And if I have several copies of the letter that he wrote in 53, tell them how Ford, the hot rod market was all old Fords and everybody ran flatheads. And he thought that if Chevrolet did it right and they brought this V8 out and put some punch into it, that it could take over the hot rod industry. And little did we know in the 50s until we got into the mid 60s, there's probably more Fords running around with Chevy V8s in than there are with Fords. Uh, he, he did what he said he was gonna do. Uh, I was amazed at, at the things he did like in 1957. Chevrolet, the first uh, production car that put a horsepower per cubic inch, 283 cubic inches. 283 horsepower. Of course, it had fuel injection. It was on the Corvette and also on the 55 Chevy or 57 Chevy. But uh, I thought that was pretty interesting. And all through his career at General Motors, which lasted through 75, he was an innovator. The Corvette, uh, the Duntoff cams, they were the high performance cams for the Chevrolet. What a lot of people don't know that that original design was for the Arden overhead conversion Ford. All he did was have them change it over for the, the circle for the, for the Chevrolet. And that's where the Duntoff cam came from. If you don't believe me to read the Corvette book over here, it explains that right in there. So uh, Duntoff was, he was an engineer. He was taught in Europe. Uh, of course he was from Belgium of Russian parents but he was uh, really a sharp guy. And his, uh, his uh, being was, had to do with motors and what have you. Now, I raced, uh, I raced for 23 years and uh, we, we went pretty well. And uh, later on, I got a chance to, 
have one in Dundalk ZL1. If you remember, the L88 was the big block Chevy. And if you use the ZL1 block, which was all aluminum, it made a tremendous package. It made a lot of horsepower. Well, that Duntoff liked them. Anytime he had to send horsepower somewhere, he made sure it was a ZL1. And I was lucky enough. My engine man was Billy Gettle from Lebanon. And he found us one of those blocks. We still have it. It's over at the museum. We called it patches because every time we took it apart, we had to weld it up or put studs in it or what have you. But uh, we we were pretty successful with it. We'd be built the world of outlaws several times with it. And it was, uh, the thing was pulling better than 800 horsepower back in, uh, in 78 and 79. So you can get an idea of what it was. Then Don Yanko bought the ZL1 deal from General Motors. And I had known Don for quite a few years simply because Mr. Emery, who I drove for, was in the same zone. And we'd come over here to Hershey and new car showing, I'd always run into Yanko. So uh, I, I got to know him and he called me and asked me, since I had so much success with the ZL1, would I run his block? It's exactly the same part number. The only difference one, uh, the General Motors one had Alcoa deal on the front and the Yanko blocks had Yanko on the front. Same part number and everything. And uh, so I did, we uh, very successful with his motor. I'm sorry to say he lost his life in a plane crash in, in 1983 and that ended our association. So uh, it, was, it, was, it was a neat period for me. Uh, of course, the whole time that I was growing up and paying attention to what was going on, this guy Duntoff was there. And for me, <clears throat> restoring cars and things like that, I restored an old dirt track roadster and I had bought an Arden uh, set of heads and stuff. So I built this Arden engine and uh, stuck it in this roadster. I have pictures of it. In fact, uh, there's pictures over here of it with Duntoff actually signing this poster. <clears throat> Glenn. There he is signing that poster right on the hood of the car. Uh, I got a call from Tom Turner from Texas. Tom Turner was the guy that restored Duntoff's alley. And he was going to bring it to Watkins Glen to reunite Duntoff with it. They called it the uh, Arden reunion. And since I had a running Arden, I was an invited guest. So I was very, very thrilled to be able to go and meet this guy that I had learned about over the years and uh, to be able to maybe talk to him a little bit. Well, we actually did better than talk to him a little bit. Uh, he, uh, him and I had a mutual friend. His name was Jimmy Shaw. Jimmy was, uh, well, he used to help Ted Horn back in the good old days. He had, uh, Shaw Bolander had a garage down in Gasoline Alley in Patterson, New Jersey. And he actually won the URC championship with an Arden-powered car. There's a picture of it right here. Bert Brooks was the driver. And I Duntoff always thought that was amazing that he had got that engine perfected to where they could win a, a season-long championship. I think they won 14 races that year. So that he kept that Arden together pretty good. And then the next year, uh, 55, I think he won the championship with the Arden again. He won it, I think, the third time, but it had a Chevy in by then. So, so uh, Duntoff thought an awful lot of Jimmy Shaw. When I talked to Jimmy and told him that I was going to have a chance to meet Mr. Duntoff, he said, he said uh, I can help you there. He said, let me talk to him. So I don't know if he sent him a letter or, or called him or what. Now, I do have a letter that Duntoff sent to Jimmy, and I knew that they were good friends. But when I got to Watkins Glen and, and was introduced to him, he knew more, more about me than I did. Uh, he 
and he was very interested. Now he was up there because of the Allards and the Corvettes that were up there. I remember uh, Vic Edelbrock Jr. was there with a Corvette. I know he came over to talk about Corvettes to Dundalk. Dundalk didn't want to talk about Corvettes. He didn't want to talk about Allards. Every time we went back in our area, all he wanted to do was talk about dirt track racing. And my history in that and his history in that. What I didn't realize was that he did his R&D in a dirt track car. Here is the, <coughs> this is a, uh, a Hilligus sprint car. It was the Contanon car and it has the Arden in it. That's where he did his R&D for the Arden, which I thought was pretty interesting. The car still exists. That picture right here was taken 25 years ago up at Marty Himes' museum. But the car now is restored. I'm sorry to say they put a Studebaker in it, which it had in later in its career. But uh, it's kind of interesting that that thing did survive. Uh, anyhow, I got a chance to ask a lot of neat questions of Duntoff. My first question to him was <coughs> where he dreamed up these heads for the Flathead Ford. <coughs> and his, his answer was pretty interesting. In the late 30s, he, uh, he was a bootlegger, if you can believe that. What he bootlegged was precious metals. He had a 37 Ford, and they had a false cross member in it and they would put these precious metals in and then go from one country to another it's probably like cigarettes and coming up from from maryland you know you can get more money for something well that's what he did and he said he'd spend all night driving and this he was very impressed with this flathead ford that henry had built now he knew it had its shortcomings first of all the water jacket with the exhaust going through and he thought the valve train was pretty, pretty poor. So this was where he, his engineering came in. And he always had a soft spot for Pujo and their Hemi, okay, hemispherical. Really the, the father, does anybody know who the father of the Hemi really is? Anybody got a guess? Huh? Walter Becky. Walter Becky. I have, excuse me here, I have a, a film here. Ernest Henry is the gentleman's name. Anybody wants to find out about him, he's the guy that designed the dual overhead cam, <coughs> four cylinders per, or four valves per cylinder the head. Now, it just happens that that design also made for perfect hemming, okay, with your four valves per cylinder. And he's the first guy, thank you, he's the first guy that that did that. There's other people that, that did other things, but from 1911 to 1920, they won all kind of Grand Prix. And they sent a Peugeot over here in 1913, and of course, it had won the Indy 500. So there's the answer to that question I asked. 1913 was the first year a Hemi won the Indianapolis 500. Now, this Ernest Henry, he's the engineer, and it, it says that, that uh, Egypt must have been a very smart guy. Anyhow, Duntoff thought he was a pretty smart guy because... Uh, even Harry Miller, who you know is the father of the Afi and, and the Miller engine, uh, he gave all the credit to Pugio also. That's where it all started, this hemispherical combustion chamber. And, uh, and this Henry was the guy that, that did it. Uh, another thing I asked Duntoff was how he got involved with the with building these heads for the Flathead Ford. 
Well, him and his brother got over to the United States by the skin of his teeth, uh, getting away from Germany and away from Europe just in time because he was Jewish and Hitler was not going to sit well with him. So they were lucky enough to get out of, out of the country. And they started this Ard Motor Corporation in New York. And at the time, Henry Ford was looking for improved horsepower for his big trucks. They had the flatheads in there, but they didn't have quite the horsepower they needed. So he had done tough, build this hemispherical heads and stuff for the Ford trucks. And I have in one of my deals over here in the New York Times, it says truck engine, new truck engine in 1947. So uh, he put it on the market in 1947. Now, he, uh, they, they build them and they put three or four in trucks. Now, if anybody's ever fiddled with the flathead, you know you could put a a brick on the throttle and go in and have breakfast and come out and the thing would still be there laboring. Well, when you put these Arden heads on, it made the engine so efficient. They blew three of the four up. So Henry said, no, I'm not putting up with that. So he built a bigger flathead. Now, Duntoff's got a problem. He's got to market his, his engines as aftermarket. And as you know, there was, I don't think there was any more aftermarket stuff than for Flathead Ford back then. But the most ultimate speed equipment was the Arden Heads. They were limited limited production, but uh, price-wise, I have a price list over here. Uh, they were right around between six and $700, uh, which really considering wasn't that bad. And you could put it on a hundred horse block and at 5,200, you'd have 175 horsepower just by bolting that on. So that was pretty good. Now, this particular engine right here, if you look at it, on this valve cover, it says Arden, ours off Duntoff, and it says New York. That's where the first production was done. Now, when he started marketing these in England, it had to do with in duty or something. If you look at this other valve cover, the, the New York's been machined off and the plate on it says made in England. And they tell me it had to do with marketing from England and, you know, they were playing games. Now, the question I had was where were they produced? Well, the first grouping were all produced in New York. Now, how many were produced in England? I don't know. I've seen some valve covers that say they were they were raised. In other words, they weren't just a plate, and some of that could have been made in in uh, New Eng in England. But we we don't know that for sure. I, unless there's somebody in here that knows, I don't know. Uh, I asking questions at Duntoff was really a, a fun deal. Uh, I asked him. If, and I point blank, I just asked him, I said, okay, you worked for Ford and you went to work for General Motors in 1953. Did you work for Chrysler products? And I remember he looked at his wife and he looked at me. He said, no, and I never patented it. And they copied it to a T. Now that's, that's, that was his thoughts that particular day. So any of you Chrysler people that want to say that there was the first production was 1951, bullshit, 1947, okay? So uh, I'm just telling you what Duntoff said, and uh, he, was, he, he wasn't wishy-washy about it. I mean, he, that's the way he felt. I could, I could see a little anger in him. Uh, I also asked him about the V860 Ardens. Now, they're the rarest ones of all. He never really liked that design. He did help in the design of it, but there were some things he didn't like. The one thing is, and they look completely different than the big Ardens. Uh, they're very, very rare. They actually have 
instead of one big valve cover, they, they have two humps on them. And the problem he didn't like about them, uh, he didn't think they were efficient enough because they ran a second little push rod. In other words, to get up to, from the rocker arm down to the valve, he had to run two push rods on, I, I don't know, it was the intake of the exhaust, and he didn't like that. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I have two of them in a midget over here. It's the only two that I've ever seen. There were less than 10 sets made. And you talk about scarce as hand teeth, the V860, about as scarce of item as you're ever going to see. Uh, Dunsoff's research and development, he always, he always went back to what he liked. Now, what a lot of people don't know, of course, the small block Chevy, he designed a Hemi head for the small block Chevy. It had two plugs per cylinder. It was 283 and it, it was very good, but Chevrolet wasn't changing, okay? Now the big block Chevy, that is a semi, let's call it a semi-Hemi, much like the Chrysler Hemis are today. They're not a real Hemi, let's call them a semi-Hemi. They're, they're very close. And the big block Chevy was the same thing the way the valve arrangements and stuff works on. We're going to take a quick break. We're only going to be gone for just about 60 seconds. Right now, we would like to proudly mention our official OEM sponsor, Porsche Mechanicsburg. In the market for a Macan, Cayenne, 718, or 911, Porsche Mechanicsburg will match you with the perfect vehicle from their extensive inventory of pre-owned and new models. When it comes to service on these magnificent machines, their record of quality workmanship is unmatched with a staff of mechanics whose prowess in all facets of Porsche engineering is world-class. These are all time-tested trademarks that have been part of the Faulkner Auto Group since 1932. 2021 will witness an expansion of their sales and service excellence with the now-completed new state-of-the-art Porsche Center. Located at 6625 Carlisle Pike, Porsche Mechanicsburg is the destination when ready to make that dream a reality, parked in your driveway. And let's get back to our interview. The the car that, this car right here that he did his research and development in was driven by Ben Smarto. And it won a 3A race at Hagerstown in 1949. Now that was real early because 49 is the first year that Hilligus made a two-frame sprint car. So that would, as far as I can tell, that is the first win ever for a rail frame or a tube frame Hilliard sprint car. And I own a couple of them. So uh, I think that's pretty neat. I own the Hendershit's Miracle Power Special and Charlie Sachs's car at the time. Now, Pujo, of course, we all know that they were they were the start of the whole thing, and it's Ernest Henry, and then uh, of course Miller and the Offenhauser. Uh, Miller never quibbled. He always said that it all started with Pujo, and of course uh, is Hemi, and then uh, of course Arden, and uh, as far as I'm concerned, the father of the Hemi was Ernest Henry, so. I pretty well went through most of the stuff I want to. Let's uh, let's go to Q and A right now, and uh, see what we got. Anybody's got a question here that they'd like to answer? Grants? Yes. I'm sorry. How many Good question. Uh, the highest number I've seen, they didn't. Each head had its own number, okay? Now, because I, I saw the one over there. The highest number I saw was in the 600 range. So uh, that would lend me to believe we were at 300 sets, something like that. Now, if you look on the price list, the big Ardens were cheaper than the V860 Ardens. Now, that was the price list I have is 1949. Okay. 
Now, as far as I understand, there's less than 10 sets of the 860s because they just, they weren't efficient enough. Yes. Yes, they are. Yeah, it doesn't matter. You can't get them wrong. <laughs> it definitely is. This uh, manifold right here was built at L.B. Smith Heavy Equipment in uh, Lingoyne, okay? Now, my original set of heads that I ran on that Roadster, I bought from Bill Smith. That was L.B. Smith's nephew, lived over by Silver Spring Speedway. And he had this manifold. He bought the heads in the early 50s and drove this 52 Ford to college up in Connecticut with, with, with the heads on. Not this set, but another set. But he he made this manifold to get two floors on it. And it it's quite a piece of work. Anybody that's ever welded anything up realizes that you weld like this, it, it draws, you know. It'd been a lot better if you just piped it off and used rubber, but uh, I can imagine what it took to get this thing straightened out. It had water pipe through it, and uh, but I hate to think if you had that made, what it would cost out of that made. Thank God he knew how to get in the back door to LB spend heavy equipment. On today's market, he probably spent a couple thousand dollars to build that panel. But that that's the only one you're ever going to save like that. Yes. How did that superstore did that like the manifold? Pull your mask down a little. Yeah. How did they adapt the superchargers for that type of manifold? They had to get a different manifold for it. Well, sure. Uh, they did whatever they had to do as far as the supercharger or or something like that. Uh, it's like the fuel injection. You know, Hillborn made you special fuel injection for these because I had a set of those. So did I. So uh, it, you know, there were probably less than ten sets of fuel injection made for them. Do you remember what number set you had? Yeah. I, I, I had set 106. Right? Yeah. So 106, they started their sequence at 101. So it had been the sixth set ever made. So I adapted to a 671 blower uh, for that manifold. Okay. It's quite an operation. Well, the manifold, the way they came through, and I have pictures up here of they actually had two single cylinder that come off each bank. And originally you ran a one barrel carburetor on each side. And it was like running two engines and the same deal. Well, Duntoff realized that wasn't very good. So he brought, he sent out this display and it shows the crossover with a Ford carburetor. And it showed you how you double up and put them front to rear. They were always updating uh, the equipment. They found that they had some problems. They had some problems with the valve guides. Uh, they were falling out and they had to fix that. They had trouble with the oiling system, which they had to fix. The rocker arm stands, uh, they, they had to redo a lot of those. So there was some inherent problems, but they seemed to get them worked out pretty well. Anybody else? Front neck did have a hemi head, but you knew who front neck was. That's right, the Chevrolet brothers. They had already lost their name to Durant. So they went racing and built front neck equipment, which was a hemispherical combustion chamber. Uh, they had they, what they called a stagger valve, which is a cross flow. They really beat, built some really neat stuff. There's a lot of aftermarket stuff built for the Model A and Model B Ford that used a hemispherical combustion chamber. There, well, it, it, it's like a lot of things. Yes, but maybe not 100%. Again, I'm going to go back to semi-hemi, okay? Yes, yeah.
Well, as you can see, that's why I tipped that head up. Pretty simple to see, you know, what a hemi is. And uh, sometimes they're in a confined space. You have to alter it a little bit. And those are the ones we call a semi-hemi. They were. Now they made, uh, most of the Offenhauser were four valves per cylinder, but they also made what they called an eight valve, which was two valves per cylinder. Because Tommy used to complain when he drove for Horn in 46, <coughs> he always ran the eight valve engine and he never thought it ran as good as a 16 valve. And uh, he used to complain to Horn, one, one day Horn climbed in it, and he came back and he said, you're right. So he gave his mechanic the devil. And um, he said, the eight valve ran much better after the boss was in the car. Yes. From, uh, from the web, uh, from the Zoom, question here uh, from, uh, is from, were there any variations of the Arden heads once they were making them? There was improvements. Okay. So well, it's like I touched on, uh, they had some rocker arm problems that they had to change. The oiling, they had to change. Uh, they had some trouble with the valve seats popping loose, the steel valve seats and the aluminum mesh that they had to take care of. Also, another thing is, uh, you gotta remember they built this in 48, or excuse me, 47. Now, by the time the, the newer flathead came out, uh, would be 51, these heads also fit the 51. And you can tell the difference is uh, the one the water from in the front, but uh, because of where the distributor was in the 49 poured up here, they had run the water in, in here. Is that so, opening on that, on that right here, uh, on this head, you'll see there's the water opening in the early version. And then this would have been the late, later version, all right? Yeah. Yep. If I'm all wet, don't be afraid to put your hand up and say you're full of it. I don't mind that at all. It makes for good discussions. Early, uh, okay. Lynn, I, I personally have a question. Yes. Can you say more about the four valve configuration of the hemisphere as in the office? Per personally, I got it. How do you put four valves in a hemispherical chamber? Without being like a porcupine. Well, this uh, Ernest Henry, his design was again dual overhead cam, four valves per cylinder. Well, the only way you can arrange it, it has to be Hemi. Okay. Now, in here, there's a picture, and I can show it to you. Uh, it's a perfect, you know. Now the Offenhauser is kind of unique. They just there's there's the area is bigger, and what they do they just there's two valves over here and two valves there, and, and that's it. But doesn't that spread spread them out? Well, it's it's all about flow. Okay. And uh, the more air they can get in and out of there, the more efficient it's gonna be. Now this Henry designed that because of the, the overhead cam and the, the four valves. But what he didn't realize is to get that layout to work perfectly, it had to be a Hemi. So he designed a Hemi, even though that wasn't his desire, okay? And I consider him to be the father of the Hemi. Yes. Do you know the whereabouts of the Duntalk R&D Sprint Car? You may have answered that. Yes, I do. It uh, now has a it's restored with a Studebaker in it. I believe it's in the New England area. Is it privately owned? Or it is privately owned. owned. Yes. <coughs> Excuse me. Hilling has built roughly forty Sprint cars from forty-nine to sixty. All tube frame cars and believe it or not i have a register and of those cars 31 or 32 of them still exist 
there's only one car that we're tracing right now that we know we, we can't find out what happened to it. We don't, you know, a couple of them, we know they were destroyed at such and such a point, but the one car that we've traced, we can't, that's the only one that we can't figure. One that just showed up in the last, uh, well, 10 years ago was the only champ car Hillary has ever built, the tube frame car. And that car now just came in from California it's being restored in Southern Pennsylvania. So he's really excited to get that. That's a one-off. There was a follow-up question to the question I asked. The comment that to accommodate the four valves, uh, it took a pent-head design. Well, it's the degree. I, I, I'm not into that, but it took a certain degree angle of the valve yeah. to get to get the clearance, okay? Yeah. I, I would have... We've got some four valve heads on, on display, in the display up here. And I say on those engines, they have the characteristics of being cross flow, which I think may have been the terminology used. Well, but, but yeah, we can't the cross flow is what uh, front neck, their most efficient head was called a cross flow. Okay. Uh, you know, these guys tried anything that they could get the thing to flow better. That's what they did. But it's still the most efficient gas burning engine. Of course, 20 years from now, we'll probably talk about racing electric motors. So it doesn't matter anyhow, but the old technology is, is there. The Hemi is still the, the best way to do it. I'll, I'll ask the follow up then. Okay, those are the, those are the things that are for the Hemi. What were the comments? I mean, what the I, I don't know many cons other than uh, the probably the cost to make them, the precision of, you know, you had to be pre pretty precise. But uh, I, I think that I think the cost of manufacture would be would be one thing. It's a lot easier to make a, a flathead or something like that. And then you went to the overhead, a little more technology. Well, any of those first uh, motors, the Cadillacs, the Oldsmobiles, the Chrysler Hemis, that's why they weren't, they were all successful putting them in race cars. But where there's a weight factor, a lot of those people still ran the old flathead Ford simply because they weren't as heavy. And what was nice when a Chevy V8 came out, it was lighter than the Ford flathead. And then when you made them out of aluminum, which Dundalk, Anything General Motors cast in steel, they cast in aluminum. And you might not be able to buy it, but I guarantee it was being run. Roger Penske was running aluminum small block back in the 60s from Chevrolet. Yes. It was an overhead. Uh, it, later on, this car ran with a Studebaker in it. I'm going to say 58, 59, ran URC. Uh, there may be a picture of it in this URC book right here. I'll look look it up for you. Pardon? No, no, it was, I, I don't think there was a rule against supercharging, but there was no super, even on the 57 Ford, uh, there was no superchargers. I don't think it was allowed to tell you the truth. We just talk in from the outside. Question from here about the supercharger, the supercharger of this. Yes. Um, the uh, 32 Ford, that's here courtesy of um, Rob and Bob Ida. We appreciate that very much. That's got a uh, stock supercharger. Take a look at that. Okay. It's yeah. Car the carburetor sitting on top of the supercharger. And then yeah. Um, Ron San Giovanni, who's from uh, Connecticut, he has a roadster with a supercharger on an Arden also. But I don't, I, the Scott was a, a little simpler supercharger. I think he had a, a Jimmy on, on his up there. But uh, that's a unique, just getting everything hooked together and working right is uh, an engineering feat in itself. Ran over 200 mile an hour in the belly tank with 
Yeah, uh, the first Arden to run at Indy was brought there by A.J. Watson. Now, it didn't go fast enough to make the show, but it was a, a Ford dealer out in California in the first run that to come there. Watson came there with an Arden. Now, uh, the Granatelli brothers, they also, Grandcore was the name of their company. They also had an Arden, and I don't think it was fast enough to make the field in Indy either. Anybody else? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, from the time he had it up at Watkins Glen in 92, over the next couple of years, he went from a carbureted to a blower. Now, I don't, is he still running a blower on it? Yeah. Okay. All right. I haven't talked to Ron for a few years, but yeah, he's got a lot of miles on it. And uh, they, once you took care of the problems, they were, they were a well-designed engine. They really were. Well, what he's doing now is he's making the whole rocker and basically it. They've made so many improvements. Yeah, yeah. Well, they brought out the end stands because there wasn't enough support the way they were originally designed. Because mine did have the new end stands and then uh, the lubrication and everything. But Ron... Uh, he stayed after his pretty good. He's a pretty stubborn guy, and he stayed after it really good. Yes? You uh, referenced Henry was, Henry was the father of the four valve of the cylinder Cujo. Uh, when was the first time he made As far as I know, my research takes me back to 1911 in Puget. So, it says here that he was the first guy to put it on paper. Now he was—he wasn't the first guy to do the the dual red cams or the four valves, but he was the first guy to put it together. Okay. Now, if you can find somebody prior to that, I'd like to know about it. But my research, this is what I had found. We know things like he's on international for him because we don't. Well, international. We that if the name international, we call them internationals, by the way, and and uh, they they had to be a they had to be a truck motor. I don't think they were considered high efficiency, right? I got something at the museum you might not have seen. I got three twos or three one barrels for an international six owner on display over there. Huh? It's a homemade. Remember, you used to be able to weld those up. Uh, I forget somebody found it in a junkyard and restored it. And he said, would you like to have it? And I said, I sure would. I've never seen another one for an international. You come to the museum and I'll show you speed equipment for an in international six cylinder. Okay. I don't know. There was a guy out, I think, in the Midwest named Kenny. He put one of those in a midget on and he was all repaired. So they outlawed the, yeah. the engine the next season. Well, I, the one that I thought, as far as the midget engine was coming, was the Jiggler. Yeah, well, the Jiggler was the. They were, they were the mainstream and went good. The only I I was trying to figure out why the Arden wasn't a good motor, but apparently the two people that tested it, apparently it, it wasn't worth the effort. That, that's all I can tell you. The guy in Ohio still had his midget with the V860 Arden, and he has another completely yeah. on the same. Well, just tell him if he wants to sell him to call Bill Smith's museum. He'd love to have it. Uh, okay. All right. Yes. Well, I, I use a foundry down there to cast some aluminum pieces. For me, I don't know if it's the same foundry or not. But I can't tell you either. I have it written at home because I got I to gotta get some end caps, Franklin end caps made 
he did a set for me about five years ago. Now I need some more. But I, I don't know who he works for, but he does good work. Larry that sounds familiar. His uncle owns a farm that we now live in. Oh. He made some aluminum casters for me, and I'm sure that in our conversations, he said that they made aluminum head castings for General Motors. Okay. Well, I had him. He did a bunch of uh, parts. Uh, they were for Flathead Ford. Fixton. Remember the Fixton setup? Well, he recast a lot of that stuff because I had a Ford with Fixton stuff on it, and I used some of his stuff on that. Well, they were last year. Yeah. Anybody else? Yes. <laughs> Thank you, son. Yes. Uh, he wanted to know about the unoriginal fender on my father's Model T. Well, I'll explain it to you as best I can. I didn't blame it on you. Uh, the 100th anniversary of the Farmer's Fair at Dillsburg was coming up. Actually, it was the year before. And that was, that was 2015. And Bob Schultz thought it would be a good idea if we'd use my father's car. It would be 100 years old and it would be the 100th anniversary of the Farmer's Fair. So I agreed to take it in and run it in a parade. Now, I don't run the thing as much as I should. So it sat out at the garage. Saturday morning, of course, it's a cranker. And I like my arms and my thumbs. I don't like cranking it, so I strap start it, which I've done many times. Uh, I... My wife was in my truck and we hooked the ball on and, and we pulled. Well, she didn't hear it start the first time and I was trying to get her to stop and I, I stalled it. So I said, okay, start it again. I made her aware to be ready to stop. Well, it started right up again off the end of the strap and she heard it and she stopped. The problem was I was back there trying to adjust this and that. And I looked up and realized she was stopped. Now, if you're used to driving a Model T, you know exactly what to do. But if you're not used to driving a Model T, your first impression is to jump on the clutch and the brake, which isn't at the right place. So I jammed low gear and ricocheted it right off the back of my truck. Needless to say, I didn't drive it that year. I had to take it in the next year, right, Bob? And, and run it in the parade. So that's the name of that tune. Now, it folded that fender up like you wouldn't believe, but I didn't have the heart. I took it down to a metal man, and I said, I don't care what it costs. I want this fender back on this car. And he did a tremendous job. Uh, it, it looks home. Now, does that make you happy, son? Thank you. It was Bob's fault, right? Huh? No, it wasn't Bob's fault. I blame it my wife. She's not here. But I can tell you, from my own personal experience, I failed Model 2 training because of who the hell would put C on that pedal? It's a clutch. I know. And the, prob and the problem is you got big feet. And then, and then those early pedals are only about this wide and only about this far apart. You could just take one foot and smash all three of them right down. Now, I will tell you, if you do that, it will stop. Okay, it will stop. Yes. So a couple of years ago, uh, at the chocolate field, his neighbor uh, had the R&B car there for sale. Yes. Yes. Uh, it was AACA certified, I guess, by you. Probably, right? yeah. Uh, but there was no mention of it having a connection with Duntalk. Gay thinks it's still available. Yeah, well, the car, the car was in the last six months for sale. I was disappointed because when the car went to where it was, it had an Arden with it. 
And I think they sold the Arden off and put the Studebaker in. To me, it would have been a lot neater if they'd have put it back the way it was when Duntoff did the R&D with it. And I don't know where this will go. The question from the Zoom, does the name Cotton Worksman mean anything to you? It, it does not. Is that, is that, I, I know Don Roscoe built roughly 30 sets in California of the Ardens. And then he sold the patterns to somebody I think is producing them now. And from what I understand, you can buy a brand new set for around $14,000. That's, that's my thought anyhow. Gay just came back and said, damn, you should have bought the car. It was only a thousand, only a couple thousand apart when he saw it. So well, it, yeah, but uh, the history of that car, but it's not, I, it's probably something they may not even know. I didn't know it until I talked to Duntoff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was sold. This picture is taken up in uh, up in Long Island, New York, when it was at the Marty Himes Museum. He had it complete with the Arden engine and everything. That's when it should have been bought. Perhaps if it was Gay's, if it was Gay's neighbor in the chocolate field, maybe Gay can find out who the net, the member was and let us know that. Okay. I. I can find I can find out who owns the car right now. Uh, question uh, from, from Zoom: Why are and I think you addressed this? Why are there block off plates on the front of the Arden heads on the display engine? I think you I think you addressed that. Is that you know what? Is that the water inlet? I'll say the water clear. inlet are are weird. Then later on, uh, they designed this and put it right down in here okay okay that was it was a design change because of the distributor here okay you've got another water distribution in the center that's that's true but that's one nice thing about this i built i built that race car put this in I spent all kind of money, built a beautiful big radiator, like you always have to have for a planet. I couldn't get this damn motor to run over 140 degrees because the exhaust is going out, you know what I mean? And it holds so much more water that uh, I realized I just spent $500 for a radiator I didn't need. But you live and learn. Anybody else? Well, that's good. Uh, first of all, I want to I want to thank the museum for inviting me over. Thank you. You've been a very very good audience. Viewers, we are back to Studio A. Hope you enjoyed the Lynn Paxton presentation. Again, John, thank you for being the correspondent that Saturday. Yes, I loved it. It was a learning experience and a lot of fun. Yeah, much much appreciated. Where might uh, folks find out more information if they want to delve a little deeper? Check out the Eastern Museum of Racing down in York Springs, Pennsylvania. Uh, it, it's a phenomenal uh, museum that's dedicated to all things racing. Mm -hmm. uh, the staff, extremely knowledgeable, and Lynn, who is the face of the place, is phenomenal, and he's there quite often. It's just a, a treasure trove, and it's right here in our backyard. Uh, and of course, if you're not in this area, it's definitely worth the trip. Uh, awesome. Well, I really appreciate all your help on this. Why don't we downshift and do this week's trivia answer? And if you recall, John asked at the top of the show. Yes. Where did the name Arden originate? And the answer is, well, actually, we did a little wiki on this, and uh, it was associated with Ford Flatheads and the fact that uh, first offered it in 1947. It was a bit of an aftermarket uh, offering, but uh, these heads then converted uh, the Ford Flathead to an overhead valve, which operated in a hemispherical chamber. Now, Zora Arcus Duntoff of, yes, of the Corvette fame, who later then worked for General Motors, 
was a, a true um, contributor and a force behind the development. Of- and don't forget his brother, Yura. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a what? Yeah. Oh, oh. <laughs> I'm a, I must be one. <laughs> I thought you were calling me a name. Cheapers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They were the tandem. <laughs> Zora's brother, Yura. So the, the fact of that is you have the uh, A-R of Arcus and then the D-U-N of Duntov. So the A-R, the D-U-N together creates the Arden. You got it. So that was something I had no idea about until we did a little more research. So that is your trivia answer for this week. Well, John, thanks for being a member of the Cars of Carlisle crew. And uh, to everyone listening, thank you for being here week after week. We are so glad for your support. Be sure to check us out uh, on Facebook, Instagram, and putting the good word out to your car clubs, friends and family, and and all your car buddies. That helps a lot. We just want to continue to grow and and pull great content and meet amazing people just like we did with Limpact. So for now, I'll simply close by saying drive well, be well, take take care. care.